The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Dina Rose. Uh, she's the author of It's Not About the Broccoli, Three Habits to Teach Your Kids for a Lifetime of Healthy Eating. And recently, uh, New York Times personal health writer Jane Brody devoted a, a column to her, Another Approach to Raising Healthy Eaters. Uh, and welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Rose. Good morning, Catherine. I'm so pleased to be here with you. So you are a researcher, 15 years experience in teaching and research, and you're here to tell parents how to feed their children right, or so that they'll eat right. And it's not just about the nutrition. It's also about how to eat and the process of eating, I guess, is is what it is. It's the behaviors associated with eating. It's not simply what we eat or what they eat. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it is, in the end of the day, what you eat. But when we educate parents about nutrition and tell them what their kids ought to eat. Like, I've never met a parent who really doesn't know what their kids ought to eat. But come on, we're all struggling to get our kids to eat the kinds of food that we, that we serve. And so it really is about parenting and teaching our kids how to behave the way we want them to in relation to food. So we do have to move a little bit away from thinking about just the nutrition because that just puts our attention on the food. Okay, so we're talking about eating habits. It's not just about the nutrition. What we eat, yes, is important, but changing kids' eating habits. Um, because, as I, I mean, uh, this is no secret, obviously. We have an epidemic of obesity in this country, not only with children and teenagers and adults, all of us. Uh, what is it, one-third of us are obese? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and children are included in that. So we're not doing it right. <laughs> Ironically, you know, the more we... We, we stress how important it is. The more we put pressure on, on parents, the more difficult we make it for parents to do the right thing because it makes every mouthful seem like that's the most important thing that they've got to do. And I talk to parents all over the country, and I often ask them if they've heard that they shouldn't you know, tell their kids to eat two more bites or they shouldn't make them eat their broccoli and to get in order to get their brownie. And, and everybody says that they know they shouldn't use those techniques, but they use them anyway because it's the only way that they can figure out to get their kids to eat the vegetables. And so the more we say, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, the more difficult we make it for parents, especially because we have this other belief in our society that kids don't like healthy food. And so if you tell parents you've got to get your kids to eat healthy food and you also tell them, that kids don't like healthy food, then you're really putting parents between a rock and a hard place. So we really have to shift our attention and start thinking about how do we shape behavior in the long term because that's, that's going to get us where we need to go. 
Okay, so one of the things that parents do when they're telling their kids to eat their broccoli or their spinach, and by the way, I happen to love broccoli, but I, so my mother did <laughs> something right. Uh, but control, it's all about control, isn't it? Or it, it seems to be with lots of parents in terms of their relationship with their kids and food. It's their relationship with food, trying to control or also, I think you also mentioned, you know, that element, if you love me, you'll eat the broccoli or you'll eat what I prepared for you today because it really was difficult for me to make this dinner and I'm, you know, okay, so. Well, exactly. I mean, first of all, parents, you know, we are, we are very controlling when it comes to food just for exactly the reasons that I just mentioned. You know, we, we need our kids to eat the stuff because it's healthy. We need them to eat the stuff because I just spent an hour in the kitchen cooking it. I need you to eat dinner because I need to be able to close the kitchen. I mean, there are all these things that parents need, and so we get very controlling around food. And so we really shouldn't be surprised when kids get controlling around food back to us because they sort of learn that this is a good domain for that. But we also have to understand that especially when children are very little, like, you know, we're thinking about the toddler age, really their job as toddlers is learning how to control their bodies and their environments. And, and, and eating is one of the places where parents really can't make kids eat. You know, we, we, we can make them get in the car seat. We can force them to wear a raincoat. Nature takes over and makes them fall asleep. But with food, they really do have a lot more control there. And that's one of the reasons why we have to switch strategies and start talking about teaching them because what we need from our kids, even when they're very, very little, is for them to make the right decisions about what to eat. And what we haven't had in our country is a discussion at large, sort of a cultural discussion about how we can teach children to make the right decision. And we think we can do it by telling them that food is healthy, but there's a lot of research that shows that in America, we all think that healthy food doesn't taste as good as the junky food, so the more we say you should eat this because it's healthy, the more we teach kids that that's not the food they really want to eat. So it becomes so it's very unappealing. If it's healthy, that's kind of equated with unappealing. Uh, in, in other words, you have to eat this steamed spinach and old, you know, kids, yuck, they don't want to eat it, but maybe if you cooked it nicely and you, you know, gave them uh, spinach and garlic and oil and, and it's much more appealing and it tastes better and they'd want to eat it, so that's Well, exactly. Of- I mean, first of all, we need to start talking about healthy food as if it tastes good because it does taste good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not yeah. like a scam. You're right. Like, if you cook yeah. healthy food really well, of course it, it, it tastes good, but... One of the things that's happened because we are beating the sort of nutrition drum all the time is that we've abdicated all the good tasting words to the junk. So we hold up healthy food and we say, eat this because it has vitamin C or it has iron or it has protein in it. And you can't do that when you hold up the brownies or the cookies. Instead, instead you hold them up and say, yum, this is delicious. This is, this is gooey and chocolatey. And so we use all the great descriptors for the junky food, and we use all the medical words for the healthy food, and that's one of the ways that we send the message that the healthy food is necessary but not desirable, and the junky food is really desirable. So we're marketing the food. I'm listening to you. I'm thinking because you know how they market food on television for the kids, and we're not doing a good marketing job either. It sounds horrific. Who, you know, this has vitamin D or vitamin C or whatever it has. I mean, what kid is going to be, that's not appealing. That's a really good point. Yeah, okay. So we need to market it differently. Mm-hmm. We need to start, yes, and we need to start preparing healthy food in, in, a, in a more tasty way. I mean, one of the things that happens 
with, uh, with many, many families is that they, the parents make so many compromises during the course of the regular day. They use what I call the at-least foods, the foods that they're not that happy that their kids are eating, but at least they have some kind of value. So I wish my kids didn't eat chicken nuggets, but at least they have protein. Or I wish my kids didn't eat, you know, sugary uh, yogurt, but at least it has calcium. So parents make all these compromises all day long using the at least foods. And then when it gets to the time where they're going to serve the vegetables, for some reason, like, they don't want to compromise those, so they make them, they steam them and make them sort of boring. And... And so they really can't compete with those other foods. And it's really not true. We, we have this myth in our culture also that kids prefer bland and boring foods. But if you look at those child-friendly foods, the so-called child-friendly foods, they're very, very intensely flavored. It's just that they're not flavored with the flavors you and I like to eat, maybe like garlic or chili peppers. But they're very sweet and they're very salty. And of course, they've got a lot of fat in them. And that just sort of conveys the sugar and the salt flavors and intensifies them. So there is some research that shows that kids are rejecting, let's say, fruits and vegetables because they don't have what they call the flavor hit. You know, they're not intensely flavored. So we do have to help these foods compete with the other foods, partly by serving the other foods less frequently so our kids retrain their taste buds, but also by making the healthy food really taste good. Yeah, and I think, and I think this is kind of a cultural thing. I, I, was, uh, we were in, I was in France for three weeks this summer and going out to lunch and dinner, but let's say specifically going out to lunches uh, in not necessarily very expensive places, but places that serve good food, little bistros, and you would see children sitting there and sitting there through the, a lunch, through an hour and a half lunch, eating really good, tasty food, the kinds of food that... that uh, Somehow you don't see your average American kid uh, eating in a restaurant. And so, uh, you know, can we borrow from some of those conferences? I'd say France because they have a reputation for great food. But the kids are also eating the great food, flavorful food, enjoying the food, sitting there and not jumping up and running around and grabbing just whatever food is convenient. Um, So I think there's a huge cultural difference there. Maybe we can learn from other cultures that sort of adhere to what the principles that you're talking about? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that would really be useful for pediatricians to start talking to parents about when they when the subject of food comes up because parents really get caught up in this idea that they have to find out what their kids like. like, you know, they're sort of uh, detectives, as opposed to understanding that so much of what kids like is really about what they're exposed to. So eating is really a matter of math. The foods that you are most accustomed to are the foods that you're going to like the most. And of course, kids are born with certain proclivities liking, you know, high fat foods or sweet foods or something like that. Um, And so those are foods that are easy for them to like. But one of the things that other countries like France do, first of all, is they don't talk about nutrition as much, and as a consequence, their population isn't really as educated about nutrition, but they eat better anyway because they know what the right habits are. And um, they expect children to be able to learn to like these foods instead of just giving in to the easy foods and So one of the sort of myths I keep calling that we have to change in our society is that children can like these foods. 
they are certainly capable of eating them. Most people that I encounter who have young children are actually shocked to hear that children as young as two can eat the regular table food that you and I are eating with just a few modifications. Of course, you don't want anything that's really hot, spicy, you know, sort of like you don't want to serve a very, very spicy Mexican meal or something like that. And, of course, you also want to make sure that the food is cut into the right size so that you don't have a choking hazard. But other than that, they can eat whatever you and I are eating. And what about variety? Do you think that we get, you know, is this part of the whole thing, too, in terms of uh, eating habits to, to make sure that we have a variety of foods, not eat the same thing, even if it's good for you, even if it tastes good, but you need to have some, some variety in the kinds of foods that you eat for the week, let's say, for the family? Well, absolutely. There really, it turns out, there are only three habits that translate everything you need to know about nutrition into behavior, and they are proportion, variety, and moderation. And proportion is really just about ratios, eating really healthy food more frequently than everything else. And variety, of course, is eating different foods from day to day and from meal to meal. And moderation is about only eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full and not eating for other reasons like because you're bored, sad, or lonely. And the thing about variety that is so interesting is that parents misunderstand it a lot because they think if my child won't eat new foods, how can I introduce variety? But variety really just means different. And so you're absolutely right that we can teach our children to eat a variety of foods simply by consciously rotating the foods that we offer them and starting really with just the foods that they're already eating. I call that the rotation rule. And so making a deliberate effort to not serve the same breakfast every single day or the same lunch every single day. Because usually what happens is that we get into a routine because we've got to get the job done. But then dinner time comes around, and that's when we serve up the new foods, and that's when we have all the struggle with our kids. You know, you use the word job done. and That probably says it all, and I think that probably does reflect how we feed our children, especially maybe, as you say, in the morning for breakfast. It's a job to be done. It's not... an event to enjoy, even if it can't be for a long time. No, you can't sit and have breakfast for an hour, or most families can't. But maybe not looking at it as a job to be done. Um, You know, they don't say it as much anymore, but, you know, at least for the few years, when you went to a restaurant and the waiter or waitress would come over and say, um, (laughs) are you still working on it? And that sounded like a job to be done. And I used to say, what do you mean still working on it? That sounds horrible. And and then I would sometimes get nasty. But I don't have to anymore because I think they've changed the training programs. But that's sort of in the same genre, right? A job to be done. Are you still working on it? Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and and you think about the average family, you know, we can't really fault people for thinking about especially breakfast (laughs) as the job that we've got to get done because we've got to get everybody up and out of the house, and, and it can be kind of a hectic time. But when we make the shortcut of just serving the same thing every morning, we're teaching children uh, an unintended lesson. So we're teaching them that uh, monotony is the expected thing, or this is the only kind of food I eat at breakfast, or maybe we're teaching them that mom asks me what I want to eat when it's breakfast, lunch, or snack, but I don't get a say when it comes to dinner, or we don't fight at breakfast, but we do fight at dinner. So there are lots of unintended messages, and and almost always the key to fixing whatever food struggle families are in is to just take a step back 
and to look at the world through the child's eyes and say, well, like, what lessons did I intend to teach and what lessons is my, you know, uh, what lessons are my child learning and how do I make the, the distance between the intended lesson and the learned lesson, you know, not such a big gulf. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's uh, it's boring, boring, boring to eat the same food. It would be the same. It would be boring, boring, boring if you got up every morning and wore the same outfit every day. If you, <laughs> you, so you want to change your, I mean, you know, you want to change your outfit. Well, you also want to change your food or, and, and as you say, variety, variety. But what do you do? Okay, we're talking about parents who have good intentions. Sometimes I look at some of these kids, and, um, and I mention this on the show all the time because I do travel a lot, and I see these kids and they are, if not overweight, they're obese, but then so are the parents. It's a whole family thing. So you're asking you as a clinician, sociologist, mother, researcher, you're asking, are you asking parents who themselves don't know how to feed themselves in a way that is healthy and maintain their weight and, and eat well and enjoy their food to teach kids that? So how do you bridge that gap? What do you do? How do you do that? Yeah. Well, you know, it is challenging when uh, parents eat in a way that's not healthy for the kids. But I want to say that, that again, the, the key here is for us to really think about what does it take to change habits. And so one of the things that we know with adults who uh, are overweight or who have problems eating the way that they know that they ought to is that telling them more about nutrition isn't going to help all that much because, yes, there, there's always room for more education, but almost everybody, I think, knows that cookies are not carrots. <laughs> and people who are eating a lot of cookies and not a lot of carrots already know that, but, but it's hard to change how you behave. And so... The key here, of course, is to start thinking about behavior and changing habits and what does it take to establish new habits. And that's why it's so important to start talking about habits when kids start eating, you know, really from the get-go. But I do want to say that the idea that parents can change how their kids behave even when the parents can't do it themselves is true across the board. And there are so many ways in which parents can teach their children to do things that they don't do. So parents do this all the time. You know, I, I teach my child to, to play sports, but I don't really play sports or, or something like that. So the truth is, is that what we need to do is switch from making this a good or a bad thing or making it about, you know, the value of you as a parent or a person and start talking about what are the concrete skills that kids need to learn. And here's one of them. So if you have a child who has a tendency to overeat, the first thing that we need to do is to start implementing what I call the eating zones, which are times during the day when food's available. So this is basically breakfast time is, you know, somewhere in the morning between 7 and 7.30. We have it once and then we move on. And if the child, you know, doesn't eat fine, then there's no more grazing until the next eating opportunity, which might be a snack at, at 10, and then there's lunch, and so that we're not doing nonstop grazing. The reason to do that is because it gives children a time when they're going to get hungry in between meals, but that they learn that it's okay to live with that hunger. So we're just talking about building up an appetite. We're not talking about, you know, starvation kind of hunger, because that's the road into children being comfortable. We've inadvertently taught the lesson 
that to be at all hungry is a problem to be fixed. So we have our little kids, the second they get hungry, I mean, I was that parent who had a, a, a purse full of snacks. You know, your kid gets hungry, and, and instead of saying, well, okay, you're building an appetite, we'll have snack in an hour, we say, oh, my God, i got to go get food. So that, that's sort of the way in. There are a lot of other things that have to happen that change the way kids eat, but, but, that, but that's definitely an important structural change that parents can make. Yeah, I think that whole idea of grazing that you're talking about, I know in uh, my generation raising kids, I raised three boys, there, most parents would not get into a car taking their kids to different activities wherever they were taking them to without having food or bringing food into the car, making sure that, as you say, if the, one of their kids just felt a little bit hungry, they needed to be fed, uh, not a good thing. I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> I, I right, and actually, in France, they don't do that either. In France, no, they don't. You know, they don't have we, the nonstop grazing that we have. Another thing, though, you mentioned uh, feeding, and I was talking to a teacher the other day, and she was telling me I was surprised. And we're talking about, I guess, uh, fourth graders, the three through five, those grades, um, and in the schools, they some they've stopped it. I guess you know they have birthday parties, they have mm-hmm. cookies and cakes, and. And, uh, I mean, to me, you should go to school and you don't necessarily have to have a party at school, but also that was accompanied by all kinds of food and they have snacks. I mean, and actually this particular teacher said to me, well, have, they have breakfast and they have to go to lunch and they're too hungry. And I'm thinking, well, you can go from lunch, can't you? When you're nine years old or ten years old, you should be able to have breakfast and then lunch and not have to eat in between and have snack time. Right. Right. So, so I, I agree with you. And the research about the relationship between how frequently you need to eat and weight has lots of different conflicting kinds of evidence. And so the jury really is out on whether or not kids need to snack, especially the younger kids. Like we tend to say, oh, well, they have small stomachs, so they have to eat every whatever it is every two hours. But, of course, they have small stomachs and small bodies. And in different times in history, like as you said, like when I was a kid, we didn't snack all the time, and there are different countries now where kids aren't always snacking. So I think that really is, it's more of a philosophy than sort of a medical fact that kids need to snack. And, of course, we like to think that kids are snacking on healthy food, but the research shows that kids are most likely to snack on candy and sugary beverages and salty chips and things like that. So, and if you look at schools, what are they snacking on? Generally things like crackers. So, and crackers, just, I just want to say, crackers just build a chip habit because they get kids used to the idea of salty, crunchy things at snack time. Yeah, so, and you're talking about changing habits, which is the key, the key to your book and, and, and the key to mm-hmm. having healthy habits, changing your bad habits with the proportion, the variety, and moderation. And then yeah. I think the way putting sort of that is, you know, part, the whole picture is that using that, those habits or teaching those skills in a context where you are limiting, like you say, when you eat. You don't want to eat eight times a day. A kid should be doing other things. And also, I, I guess, built into this, I mean, I know that kids have much, do much less exercise in school. What, they, they've cut out recess, and, and I'm making up the statistic, at least 40% of many of the school programs around the country. So um, the kids are just, they're not really out there going to recess or going to gym where they would get really hungry anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, 
to me, I think those three habits are key, but I think they have to also be done in a wider context, which also can help kids to, to um, eat better, eat right, and, what do we say, maintain their weight. Uh, right. But, yeah. I, but I do want to say that we have to remember that, that we are delivering our children to school at the age of five already with habits that are, are really solidified and they're not the kind of eating habits that we want our kids to have. And so as a country, this isn't really um, to be put on the, the shoulders of parents uh, by themselves. You know, really as a country, we need to start thinking about how do we teach young children to have the right habits so that we deliver them to school. I'm not saying that schools shouldn't change, and I would love to see schools stop serving snacks, stop serving so much juice. I'd love to see fewer birthday parties in the classroom, all the things that make it more difficult for parents. But we do have to recognize that it's a whole system, and, and, and so I think you're right, that we have to do a broader cultural change in how we think about it. And that's why I think the point is we need to make a mind shift as a country, a mind shift away from nutrition a little bit and start talking more about habits, and that will get us where we want to go. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things I think you mentioned in the book as well, you know, we have to take responsibility as parents or guardians, but also pediatricians need to take a look at what they're doing. And because you see the pediatrician, you know, well, baby visits, it starts from mm-hmm. there up until the age of five when they do go to school. So what role specifically should the pediatrician take? Well, the number one thing that I tell pediatricians when I talk to them that I would like to see them change when they do the well baby visits is to stop telling parents that they should use the go-slow weaning approach where you introduce one food for three days or four days and then you introduce another food for three days or you know in a row, partly because that gets parents into the pattern of monotony instead of variety, but also because it makes parents think that there is a formula and that this is a high-risk venture. And there was very, some very interesting research that was done looking at the way parents in France compared to Germany, weaned their babies, and we're much more like the Germans where they were doing this sort of go-slow approach. But in France, they were just switching up the, the vegetables that they were weaning their kids on in the first 30 days, sometimes, you know, at least every single day. And one reason was because the French mothers were concerned about taste development, whereas the German mothers and American families are interested in identifying allergies. Um, but what happened was is that because there were so many vegetables at the parents' disposal, if the children rejected a vegetable here or there, the, the French mothers just kind of shrugged their shoulders and reached for a different one, whereas the German mothers, like the American mothers, go like, no, no, I've got to get you to like peas because today's peas. <laughs> so it becomes a much more stressful thing. And I would like to add that the new recommendations now are not to withhold even potentially allergenic foods, that we should be introducing those earlier than later, even though the kinds of foods that we tend to wean on aren't highly allergenic anyway. So we really do have, we have a minute left, so I guess what, I want to mention your book again, obviously. It's not about the broccoli. Three Habits to Teach Your Kids for a Lifetime of Healthy Eating. Great book. Um, we have to change our attitude. It's a cultural thing. Uh, we have to change our attitude, change our habits, help our kids to change their habits. Um, where can, is there a website that we can go to, specific, any other websites that we can go to? Yeah. We can go, yeah. 
Sure. My website is itsnotaboutnutrition.com, and there are over 300 articles on that website that help parents and pediatricians and early childhood educators think about how to teach habits in their, in their homes or schools or, or medical practices. Great. Dr. Dina Rose, Ph.D., sociologist, parent educator, feeding expert, and author, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Catherine. I enjoyed being yep. here. Great talking to you. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We will be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you heard your 15 minutes of fame? How about four times that every single week? It's the Fame Game. Listen as Maddie Rose, who is up and coming in the world of fame, brings you fame from all walks of life. You'll hear from doctors, teachers, mentors, life heroes, as well as those in the fields of acting, movies, music, and more. Who knows? You might be the next one Maddie Rose talks to on the air. Listen for the Fame Game every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Kids Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is author Adele Ryan McDowell, Ph.D. Her book is Making Peace with Suicide, a book of hope, understanding, and comfort. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. McDowell. Oh, thank you, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here, and please call me Adele. Adele, okay. Adele, you are a psycho PhD psychotherapist, an author, That's and right. a former crisis hotline responder. You've had thirty years of experience in this field. So, uh, we're going to be talking about suicide, apparently, and unfortunately, suicide is prevalent in the not just in the United States but worldwide. The World Health Organization estimates that eight hundred thousand people die by suicide each year. Uh, tomorrow, the 10th, is World Suicide Prevention Day, so which is obviously an, an important uh, reminder of these statistics. Um, 
you know, the title of the book, Adele, Making Peace with Suicide, how can we make peace with suicide? It, it, it almost seems impossible. I know. It does almost seem impossible, but it isn't. It's a, You know, it's horrific. And not only do we have, World Health Organization tells us that on average, there is one suicide across the globe every 40 seconds. In the U.S., that number is every 13 minutes. And we're also told that the people who attempt suicide, that number can be 20, up to 20 times higher. The research varies on that. So we have a lot of people in a lot of pain. And when someone has been left holding their heart in their hand and their dreams are shattered, can you get through it? I, I believe that you can. It's, it's, it's a hero's journey, though. It is, it is very difficult. I'm sure you Adele, probably is the, know. Is the suicide rate, is it, is it increasing every year? Is it something, let's say, in the past 10 years that has increased as opposed to gone down? And if so, why? What, I mean, I know there are a lot of risk factors. I mean, we should start talking about those. You know, who is at risk for suicide? And have the stats increased over the... Uh, yeah, yeah, like we're, we're looking at veterans, 22 vets a day, right? We're yeah. seeing um, with teenagers and young adults, I believe it's now up to the... The number two reason, it could even be the number one, and the numbers change rapidly. We live in a fast and furious world. There are a lot of pressures. People who are homeless, without work, hungry, uh, Italy, Greece, uh, Ireland, all a number of years ago because of when uh, the, the money stuff hit, all the bad money stuff, it was called suicide by economic crisis. And the numbers were appalling. And some of these countries started for the first time suicide hotlines. You have in India, you have farmers and there could be a drought. And if they are using uh, GMO seeds, they only have one cycle. And there was an article in the New York Times about uh, farmers in India who were being harassed by bands of loan collectors. And the pressures were so intense that they had decided not to, they, they got to a point where they couldn't take it anymore and they ended their life and a woman was interviewed and she said, I didn't understand until they came after me how ruthless they were. You even have students taking their lives because of uh, not being able to pay student loans. So there's the economic, we live in a world that is, that is very judgmental. You have the kids who are being bullied, right? And we have cyberbullying now. Uh, there are so many things where there is great difficulty in coping with life, and you know, substance abuse, right, has always been a factor. Um, even you know, guns in the home. And um, Harvard did uh, the School of Public Health did research, and as much as some of this research is a flare for the obvious, we would say yes, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, people, there is a higher incidence of suicides with guns in the home because there's access. We have a lot of reasons. So a lot of reasons, different reasons perhaps in different countries. Some of the economic reasons you mentioned around the world may have, well, applied to us definitely when the, uh, in the Great Depression. Uh, there's a lot of, here in the United States you mentioned bullying. I think sometimes expectations for teenagers or uh, young people to do well in school or to be successful or, you know, those are I think some of, of some of the reasons anyway for suicide attempts here. Um, in the United oh, States. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. They even did a study, the child prodigies, 
um, have experienced suicidal feelings because of the pressures on them with their great gifts and what they're supposed to do. There's a lot of pressure on today's kids. On You need to perform and you need to do well and you need to get into this school or you need to do great on that team. And also kids, they don't Life can be so black and white. You know, the brain is not fully developed until your early 20s, until you think, oh, my gosh, I I wasn't accepted in that social scene or whatever, and so my life is over. Or my my first boyfriend or my first girlfriend broke up with me. My life is over, not understanding that there are many more chapters to come. And not being able to see that there are choices, getting locked into this either-or situation. You know, I couldn't do this, so it's it's over, just as you said. But, hey, there are a lot of choices out there, but not being able to see them. One of the things, obviously, that you talk about in the book is, you know, how how do you spot people who are at risk for suicide? I mean, what can we look for in families and schools or or, or, clinicians uh, or just a friend? Like, you know... Well, you're always going to look for isolation, right? Somebody who's isolated, withdrawn. It doesn't necessarily mean they don't have loved ones who care about them, but they are pushing them away. Depression, as we know, is one of the number one risk factors. And depression looks like, you know, you're hunkered down, you're in a dark hole. Um, Nothing feels right. Um, Often you're paralyzed, you could be equally exhausted and in pain on all levels, and your thinking isn't straight or clear. So you look, you look for that. But you also look for if people are talking about death or dying or suicide, even in a joking or seemingly sarcastic something, you know, heads up and you listen. Because the research has also told us that so many people who have taken their lives have talked about it prior to the act. And I think this happens because suicide is counter intuitive to the primal force of life, right? So, Catherine, if you and I are in the same room and I put a pillow over your face, you're going to fight me because your natural instinct is for life. And I think for people to make that decision to get to that place, the pain has to weigh, has to outweigh everything. And so, that, and of course, there can be confuddled thinking and, and crazy mixed up emotions and haywire neurochemistry. There are a lot of factors. But it is, pain is the predominant catalyst. So, you know, we look for people who are withdrawn. We look if they're depressed. We look if they're being out of control and self-destructive. One thing also is people who have protracted periods of sleeplessness. You watch them as like going out on a tree limb and their thinking gets tighter and their reaction I recently worked with a woman, I was called in, and she was trolling the Internet, um, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, in her late 60s, going through a, a bout of depression, a lot of anxiety, you know, had some, some losses in her life on top of other losses, including a while back, a husband who had died by suicide. And she wasn't sleeping, and, she, and I said to her, I'm very concerned if you don't get some sleep, we're, we're, we're talking about hospitalization because what happens is when you have those protracted periods, and I'm not talking about necessarily insomnia. I'm not an expert on insomnia, but it is the sleep. It is the restless sleep like this woman was up running, literally running to her house in the middle of the night, and she needed help. And once she got some, um, she was in a safe place at a hospital and some psychopharmacological help, then she's she's back to normal. But she said to me at the time, she never believed that she would get well. 
never, ever in our life. And that protracted, protracted lack of sleep can put people in very, very dangerous positions. Uh, uh, so they're in a very, they get them into a zone they don't want to be in. They feel hopeless and helpless and, <clears throat> and, yeah. and I understand looking for that. You know, you mentioned obviously depression if somebody is depressed. Um, right. I, I was reading an article about, uh, and you mentioned the military, you know, that the, the statistics for those in the military who commit suicide. I, right. this is, there was one, there was an article about, and I want to ask you this because there was an article about people in the military, and I assume those, who, I assume that people who were in the military coming back from war, post traumatic stress disorder, they ended up sometimes or many times committing suicide. But this article pointed out that it's not necessarily those who are coming back from war, but those who may be just depressed, who aren't serving in other countries, who are serving in the military, let's say, within this country. But when they do get depressed, the medical community prescribes these drugs, medication, that Mm -hmm. is responsible for suicidal behavior. And, you know, when I'm watching television and they're talking about drugs, I can't even remember the names of the drugs, but, you know, the the disclaimers always say this may be something that could... Yeah, so we're over-medic... I guess this is kind of long-winded, but we're over-medicating... We're all being over-medicated, and as a result of that, we're, you know, to sort of to mask the symptoms of depression, but it's actually causing us to be or to become... Uh, potentially suicidal, the drugs themselves. I, I totally agree with you, and I've read that article as well. And you find, I just read this the other day, that um, that when soldiers go off to combat, they are given some kind of benzo packet. In other words, things to deal with their anxiety while they're there. And what I read, um, it, it was a pretty heavy-duty uh, combination of things, some everyday kind of anti-anxiety, and one that I thought, wow, that's a heavy-duty thing. And then they come home, and, and they've got to deal with that. And I worked with the guys when they came back from Vietnam, and they were all doing heroin, and then they got peed up on the street because of how to cope with that. But you, I also read a thing by uh, somebody in the VA that they're finding now that people who kept it together for a lot of years... Um, in whatever war it was, then all of a sudden they start uh, exhibiting later on down the road some PTSD symptoms. And I think that would speak to the uh, accumulation of stressors in the individual's lives and then what has happened to get them there. But even with the young people, you, I, I read someplace that they were talking about giving grade school kids antidepressants, and I was horrified. Um, you know, because we know if we look at trauma, if we look at substance abuse, if we look at suicide, we are talking about something that impacts the brain, right? In addiction, the brain is captured. In trauma, the brain and the body are captured. And in suicide, definitely, the the thinking around it, the, you know, it's like this is, you know, that whole spectrum. And you go from ideation to, to this to that, and you get to a place where you think this is your answer. But if that is confuddled with medications, many of which have... Uh, counterproductive side effects, that's not a good thing. On the other hand, there are medications that have gotten people out of bed who've been in bed for three weeks and withdrawn from their family. So there's a happy balance in there. But I think, you know, sometimes we think the answer is just to throw a pill as opposed to let's do the process work. Yeah. So I want to talk about that process work because, as you say, we all... 
uh, if not ourselves, but people that we know or are close to experience some kind of crisis or trauma during our lives. I don't think we can get out of here. Uh, I mean, we're going to all have some kind of crisis with, well, you talk about some of the extreme domestic violence, sexual assault, even but crisis from, like, say, Hurricane Katrina, uh, people who have, so there are all kinds of traumas, personal, individual, family, catastrophic things that happen, but instead of drugging ourselves, when it's appropriate, yes, we need certain medications, because I want to make that clear, we're not saying, but there are other, there are also other ways to help one to help at-risk persons or individuals so that they don't take their own lives. So let's talk about some of those, because you've had a lot of experience in in, in doing it, obviously. Uh, What can we do? What should we do? Professionals and non-professionals. Well, I mean, I think when you're you're looking at somebody, you you need to be very honest and talk from your heart. I had a gentleman who called me many, many years ago on a Friday night, and he said to me, Adele, I'm going to cut off a certain part of my body with a knife. And I'm like, that's really not a good idea. And um, so I said to him, I think you need to be hospitalized. I get him a bed, blah, blah, blah. And But I can't get the bed till the next day. And, um, and so I say, can you get somebody to drive you and what have you? And we talked that night. We talked in the morning. And he says to me, Adele, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to the hospital. I said, I know you don't want to go, but you're not safe and I want you to be safe. We'll talk while you're in the hospital. You're not going to be there for long, but let's just get you balanced out. Because if you're holding a, a cleaver to your genitals, this is not a good idea. And um, his psychiatrist called me. and actually, actually, she hadn't returned my calls before that. And he gets into the hospital. She calls me. And she said, how'd you get him in here? I said, what do you mean, how'd I get him in here? I just told him the truth. I said, you know, when I was in high uh, college, senior year in college, I worked the first suicide um, hotline paraprofessional in the country. And we had training, and it turned out that I ended up getting a lot of the calls, as the gods would have it, and a lot relative terms to them. And and I remember talking to people, and the, you, you wanted to talk to them. You also wanted to find out where they were so you could go get them and make them safe, because that's what we did in those days. And, you know, the, the guys would always, they were all guys that I talked to, and every one of them said to the police, please take me to where I was at New York Hospital. Please take me. They were supposed to go to a local hospital to be checked out physically and psychiatrically, not just where I was, because they wanted to talk to me. And my greatest regret is I I was so scared. I was young. I was scared they were going to be mad at me. You know, now if I saw them, I'd probably give them a hug. But I was young, and I didn't know what to do. The When somebody's in trouble, you talk from your heart, and you want to expand their world. So you want to expand resources. You know, we have 800 lines. We have, um, and I'll just mention it, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, which is 8255, 1-800-273-TALK, 8255. And there's a crisis text line now, which is 741-741, crisis text line 741-741. So if somebody's in trouble, first you want to establish that they're safe, right? Are we safe? Let's make sure that we're physically safe. And if you have any doubts or any concerns, just pick up the phone and call for help. You call the police, you call the EMTs, you you call who you need to call. If someone is in uh, dire places, if they are talking about it but they're serious and they're scaring you, 
you, you say, let's talk about it, and you make a connection. If they won't hear anything you're saying and you think they're in danger, you make a call. But more than likely, they might be, you know, you, you want to listen and hear what they have to say. And then you want to see if they have a doctor that you can contact. You want to, you know, a hotline. If you if you feel overwhelmed, let somebody on the hotline. And there's so many. Um, the 1-800 number, it's English and Spanish, um, they're are so many resources all over the Internet uh, for individuals to get help and for family members who are concerned about their individuals to get help. And you can also go to your local emergency room as well. But my thing is you want to insert a pause. You want to stop the trajectory of that spiral down and see if you can metaphorically open a door or open a window so that there is a possibility, a hope, a resource that hasn't been explored. Let's look what about at Adele? Um, uh, what about the the concept or the the of shame? Because shame seems to be associated oh, yes. with suicide. For some, well, I'm going to ask you: Why are we ashamed to talk about it as individuals, as a society? Uh, kind of want to not. We just don't want to deal with it. The, the, you know, shame comes up in capital letters. Why? You're, no, you're right. You're right. Look at the whole um, Ashley Madison kerfuffle. Right? Yep. All those people who were exposed, and there were, I think, three suicides as a result of that. Right? So shame says, I'm a bad person. Right? It embarrasses, I, I, I made a mistake, I did something wrong. Shame says, inherently at my core, I'm a bad person. And with shame goes uh, ostracization, uh, judgment, and everything else. So people with shame, and we've seen it with some of these financial guys, right, who have been called down too, that they'll end up um, taking their lives because they don't want to deal with the court thing or the the public, uh, you know, what happens with the public and how they're examined. But when you, and, and shame is a learned response. Like fear, shame is a learned response. And so shame, you know, depending what your individual background is and, and how you were raised, and, and, and some days parents did raise their kids by shaming, you know, thinking that would make them better. Uh, that if you, if that's a trigger button for you, and I have one gentleman I work with who gets to, who's so terrified that if he is publicly shamed, that he, if he messed up with his company, um, that he tells me he would take his life because it would be too much for him to bear. It, it's very, very common. And you look at the kids with the cyberbullying, right? And yeah. if, a, if a kid is outed for his sexual preference, and there was in New York, there was the story of the, the young man who somebody taped or did whatever, and they made public um, yeah. his first liaison, and he took yeah. his life. Yeah. So the, uh, shame, that plays a huge factor. It also, I think, pay, plays a factor in people don't want to if they've been touched by suicide or someone in their family has attempted or committed suicide, they don't want to talk about it. They don't, I mean, it's something that um, families, and I think even in communities um, themselves, don't want to discuss. And if you don't want to discuss it and don't want to make people aware, there's not too much you can do about it, right? Because we're talking about making, <laughs> yes. yeah. You're, you're absolutely right, because, and you look at it, I had a woman that I was interviewing for the book, right? And so um, she fought her husband. He had an illness. The ethics committee at the hospital said, okay, you don't eat, blah, blah, blah. He ended up taking his life when he had a, a 20 minutes to himself. But it comes out in the story that she's telling me that she had lost her dad to suicide. And, um, but she told everybody it was a heart attack. They told everybody in the town that it was a heart attack. And there's a euphemism, died suddenly. 
another woman I work with, they put in the paper that her husband died at home, right? Yeah. Truthful, but um, people don't want to talk about it because there's a shame that as the survivor, maybe you did something wrong or you didn't do enough or, you know, they're also... Suicide survivors of suicide are automatically in a high risk category for suicide themselves. The taboo has been broken. Uh, whatever they saw and walked in on, or, or whatever they imagined, plays in their head. And unfortunately, it is all too common for survivors who've lost one someone to suicide to also take their lives. So are you saying, like, children who have lost a parent to suicide have a higher rate of suicide themselves? I mean, there are actual statistics on that? There are statistics on it, but I don't know if the statistics are children. I think that we're talking about other adults who have. But the children are traumatized. So what you, if a child, and I've talked to some of these kids who have walked in and found something, they are traumatized. I know in one experience of a person as a young adult found his mother and 30 years later he took his life in the exact same way as his mother and it was a complicated methodology on how he went out yeah well yeah that's what i meant when they get older they will they have a higher well yeah well they're they're at a higher risk yeah yeah exactly all right so we have a couple minutes left so what can we do i mean we are um you know suicide uh, prevention, where we have uh, the tomorrow, I guess, is, is the day that we're, I don't know if celebrating is the word, but, um, but... But making it known and making it public and pulling it out of the closet and giving it light, like you're doing today, you know, that's, that's one thing. It's understanding what suicide is. It's, you know, it's a, it's a call for help, and it has many shapes and faces. And if you are a survivor who's lost someone, a, there are support groups out there, you know, B, I, you know, I have a process that includes, you know, acceptance until we accept the reality of something we can't change it and the forgiveness of, of ourselves for whatever we think we may or may have done or not done and forgiveness of our loved one because uh, anger is a huge uh, legacy left over to people who have lost someone to suicide. They're furious, absolutely furious. How could you do it? And then there's compassion. Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm thinking of a spouse or a child who loses someone to suicide. It's like if you loved me, you wouldn't have done that. You would want to be with me. You would want to stay with me. And that, that's yeah. right. Was, wasn't my love enough? Enough, exactly. Well, let's we tell us what websites we can because now we have a lot of access, obviously, to information on the net. But you know, and your book. Um, so we can get your book at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Making Peace with Suicide, A Book of Hope, Understanding, and Comfort. And also Adele, Dr. McDowell, has also written other books. Do you have a a website we can go to? Yes, thank you. Uh, AdeleRyanMcDowell.com, and there's also one in the book with a blog called MakingPeaceWithSuicide.com. Okay. Well, you're doing great work, and, uh, you know, I guess the key, what comes out of this interview is just we have to be aware, and, uh, you know, uh, from people like you, and uh, um, which is exactly what you're doing. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you very much, Catherine. Uh, Thank you for allowing this discussion and the compassion. It's an important topic. I'm really grateful. Great. Dr. Adele Ryan McDowell, Making Peace with Suicide, A Book of Hope, Understanding, and Comfort. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone uh, on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. 
have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.